and welcome to Mempest. We've got Dr. Adam Lawson with us today, a consultant hepatologist at Derby. In our previous podcast with Dr. Lawson, we discussed the management of a patient with liver cirrhosis and ascites. In this episode, we're going to talk about a couple of the more severe complications that can develop in patients with cirrhosis and ascites, namely SBP or spontaneous bacterial peritonitis and hepatorenal syndrome. Thank you. So, as I mentioned in the last podcast, the prevalence of SBP in patients with liver cirrhosis and ascites who present to hospital as an emergency is approximately 10%. So it's important that you follow the British Society of Gastroenterology and Basel decompensated cirrhosis care bundle and perform an acidic tap in any patient with liver cirrhosis and ascites who's admitted to hospital. Once you've performed your acidic tap, then the diagnosis of SBP is made on finding an acidic neutrophil count of more than or equal to 250 cells per millimeter cubed. So you don't need a positive culture to make a diagnosis of SBP. If we're dealing with an outpatient population, then the prevalence of SBP in a patient with ascites is only 15 to 3.5%. For this reason, we're happy to use the reagent strips you use to dipstick urine. If we're seeing someone as a, an outpatient just for elective paracentesis, but if we have an inpatient, an unwell cirrhotic, then reagent strips aren't adequate and you need to make sure you send fluid for cell count. You also need to remember that a worsening liver function test may be the only clue that a patient has SBP. They don't need to have a pyrexia or abdominal pain. The lack of that shouldn't put you off the diagnosis. If you do get a very high acidic neutrophil count, perhaps a thousand or more, and or your culture reveals multiple organisms, then you do need to consider the possibility that the patient actually has a secondary bacterial peritonitis and arrange a CT scan to exclude pathology such as a bowel perforation. So let's imagine that our 50-year-old man with decompensated alcohol-related cirrhosis that we discussed in the last podcast has now been admitted feeling genuinely well. He's got some increased jaundice and his acidic neutrophil count is 676 cells per millimeter cubed. So what do we need to do next? The key to his treatment is to resolve the initial infection, ensure that he does not develop renal impairment, which is a common complication of SBP, and then to prevent recurrent SBP. So in terms of treating the initial infection, your antibiotic choice will depend on your local microbiology policies. SBP is typically caused by gram-negative bacteria, though infection with gram-positive cocci are more common when your patient's already been receiving prophylaxis with a quinolone antibiotic. In Derby, we use comoxiclab as our first line antibiotic, and then we use ciprofloxacin in penicillin-sensitive patients. I know, however, that many trusts and guidelines recommend a third-generation keflosporin, such as kefotaxine. Once we've started our antibiotics, then it's important that we do a repeat acidic tap 48 hours later, if our acidic neutrophil count has not fallen by more than 25%, then that should raise the suspicion that we have antibiotic resistance, and you should then consider changing to a second-line antibiotic. And again, here in Derby, we tend to use tazacin in that situation. Now, if you just use antibiotics alone in the treatment of SBP, then unfortunately, renal impairment will occur in about 30% of your patients. So for that reason, we recommend that patients receive human albumin solution on day one and day three of treatment. This has been shown to reduce the risk of kidney injury to about 10%. The dose is weight-based, so you're giving 1.5 grams per kilogram on day one and then one gram per kilogram on day three, and you're calculating that based on an estimated dry weight. That often involves a bit of rounding up and rounding down, 
but if we imagine our patient's got a dry weight of 70 kilograms, then he's going to need 105 grams of albumin on day one and 70 grams on day three. Since each 100 ml bottle of 20% has contains 20 grams of albumin, and I'd typically be giving this patient perhaps 500 ml bottles of 20% has on day one and then three on day three. A lot of these patients presenting with a site as an SBP will be on a beta blocker for treatment of esophageal varices. When a non-selected beta blocker such as propranolol or carvidolol used from being beneficial to harmful in a patient with portal hypertension is much debated. As mentioned in the last podcast, the jury is out when it comes to refractory ascites, but the potential negative effects on a patient's hemodynamics mean you should probably be stopping your beta blocker during an episode of SBP in order to reduce the risk of it precipitating acute kidney injury. You can, however, choose to restart it following resolution of the infection. Now, once you've treated the episode of SPP and hopefully seen your patient make a good recovery, then you need to ensure that they're discharged on a prophylactic antibiotic. This will reduce their risk of getting a recurrent SPP from 70 to 20% at one year. Your choice of antibiotic will depend on your local microbiology policies, and in some trusts, that might be influenced by concerns about Clostridium difficile infection. In Derby, we prescribe cotrimoxazole, 960 milligrams once a day, but I know that many hospitals use the quinolone antibiotic ciprofloxacin. One of the more contentious issues when it comes to SBP and the use of antibiotics is primary prophylaxis. And I'm talking now about those patients with low protein ascites. There is good evidence that if patient has an acidic protein level of less than 10 grams per litre and or high bilirubin levels, then they are patients that are at increased risk of SBP. And perhaps for this reason, NICE recommend offering prophylactic ciprofloxacin or norfloxacin to patients with cirrhosis and an acidic protein of 15 grams a litre or less. It's worth knowing, however, that this recommendation is based on pretty limited evidence and it also plays a little bit loose with the evidence because the trials that have been done show that primary prophylaxis in patients with low protein ascites is particular to those patients with significantly impaired liver function, so patients with a CHALPU score of 9 or more or a bilirubin of more than 51, or those patients that have existing renal impairment. In those patients, it improved survival at three months, though the benefit did then seem to decline over time. It is something which a large UK study is planned shortly, which hopefully may more definitively answer the question as whether we should give primary prophylaxis. So the final message on SBP relates to prognosis. So the mortality at one year following an episode of SBP is between 50 and 70%. So if you're not already considered whether your patient with ascites is a candidate for transplantation, then now is the time to do so. So moving on from SBP, one of the biggest fears when looking after a patient with decompensated liver cirrhosis is the development of an acute kidney injury. And this will form the second part of this podcast. So invariably, if a patient with liver cirrhosis is admitted with acute kidney injury, then they're quickly labelled as having a pattern renal syndrome. However, the truth is that HRS accounts for less than 25% of AKI episodes in patients with liver cirrhosis. AKI in the unwell cirrhotic is often multifactorial, but in most cases it comes down to a reduction in the infective circulating volume. Your patient with liver cirrhosis and portal hypertension, you should remember, will have an expanded volume of blood in their splanchnic circulation, and this often comes at the expense of the systemic circulation, and though activation of the RAS system 
will increase the circulating volume and hopefully maintain renal perfusion. These patients are always on a knife edge and it therefore takes a relatively minor insult to reduce the systemic circulating volume and tip them over the edge into an acute kidney injury. Recognition of an acute injury in a cirrhotic patient is actually done very badly. Creatinine and EGFR are not a reliable indicator of AKI in patients with liver cirrhosis. It's not unusual, for instance, for a patient with liver cirrhosis and perhaps a poor muscle mass to have, say, a creatinine of 30. If that patient then has a creatinine of 70 with an EGFR of more than 60, then it may still appear normal on your laboratory reporting system. It clearly represents a significant deterioration in that patient's renal function. Uh, it's sometimes only when the creatinine is then 150 a couple of days later that the penny drops. So you need to be very mindful in this population of any increase in creatinine even when the result remains within the normal range. Urine outputs also, unfortunately, an unreliable indicator of renal function in patients with cirrhosis. Surgeon retention means that these patients are often oliguric despite maintaining their GFR. So in my experience, trying to chase a cirrhotic patient's urine output with intravenous fluids invariably leads to causing fluid overload and, and sometimes respiratory distress. So a better way of monitoring an acute kidney injury is to uh, adopt the kidney disease improving global outcomes, AKI stages, and your local laboratory may report these for you. As a reminder, AKI stage 1 is where there's an increase in creatinine of 26 within a 48 hour period, or an increase of 1.5 to 2 times a reference creatinine in the last 3 months. AKI stage 2 is where there's an increase of 2 to 3 times the reference creatinine, and stage 3 an increase of more than 3 times the reference creatinine or an absolute creatinine of more than 354. Once you've identified that your patient has AKI then it's important to determine the cause. As I've mentioned don't immediately jump to the diagnosis of hepatorenal syndrome. You need to remember that HRS is a diagnosis of exclusion and it's based on AKI occurring in a patient with cirrhosis and ascites. They also need to have had no response to 48 hours of diuretic withdrawal and plasma volume expansion there should be an absence of shock, no current nephrotoxic drugs, a normal renal ultrasound, and the absence of proteinuria or hematuria. You can see, therefore, that HRS is not a diagnosis that you should be making when the patient's first admitted to hospital. And note again that diagnosis requires the presence of ascites. In practical terms, therefore, you want to check for any causes of hypovolemia. You want to review the patient's medication list and look for any potentially nephrotoxic drugs and then you want to make an assessment of the patient's volume status. If your patient's mean arterial pressure is less than 65 millimeters mercury, then that means autoregulation of renal blood flow will be lost and the flow will decline in proportion to their renal perfusion pressure. You also need investigations that rule out sepsis, such as urinalysis and chest x-ray, and then a renal ultrasound. So in terms of treatment, if our patient has AKI stage 1, then you should be looking to stop any nephrotoxic drugs such as NSAIDs or ACE inhibitors. Hopefully if your patient has ascites, they're not on those anyway. You should also either be reducing or stopping diuretics, lactulose and beta blockers. You want to then aim to volume expand with either a litre and a half of 0.9% saline, giving it in 500 ml boluses, or 1 gram per kilogram of human albumin solution, in both cases aiming for a mean arterial pressure of more than 80. If you then get a rapid reversal in the AKI over the next 48 hours, then that suggests you've got a volume responsive pre-renal AKI and you don't have HRS. If your patient's got more severe kidney failure, so AKI stage 2 or 3, 
you definitely need to be stopping your diuretics and your beta blocker and you again need to volume expand with saline or albumin solution aiming for a map of more than 80 millimeters of mercury if there's no response to volume expansion then you should be commencing that patient on a vasoconstrictor remember to check there's no contraindications such as ischemic heart disease on the ward we typically use terlipressin one milligram four times a day though it would be equally appropriate to use noradrenaline if you're in an ICU setting. The European Association for the Study of the Liver recommend that you then increase the dose of terlipressin to 2 milligrams up to 4 hourly on day 3 if you haven't had a 25% reduction in your creatinine. We also give the terlipressin in combination with albumin solution, typically 1 milligram per kilogram for the first 2 days and then 40 grams of albumin daily after that which is equivalent to 2 bottles of 100 ml 20% albumin. If your patient has hypotension and a low MAP and it doesn't respond to volume expansion and vasoconstrictors, worth considering getting an echocardiogram because you may find your patient's got a cardiomyopathy, particularly if it's a patient with alcohol-related liver disease. So that's the mainstay of management of acute kidney injury in patients with cirrhosis. One area of management where hepatologists differ in their approach is whether or not to perform a large volume paracentesis in a patient with a non-responsive AKI. On the one hand, post-paracentesis circulatory dysfunction may exacerbate an existing AKI. But there's also a school of thought that if you reduce abdominal pressure through paracentesis, you may improve renal venous return. One option in this situation is to perform a limited 5-litre paracentesis, which hopefully avoids the post-paracentesis circulatory dysfunction. But one of the problems of incomplete drainage of ascites is you often get leakage afterwards. So, Hopefully our patient responds to the above measures and their AKI improves and those patients who do not respond then there's often the difficult question of whether to offer renal replacement therapy. If you've got a patient with a reversible precipitant such as sepsis or an alcoholic hepatitis then I think it is reasonable to offer renal replacement therapy but unfortunately for many of our patients there is not a reasonable prospect that the liver function will recover and in that situation, unfortunately, renal replacement therapy shouldn't be given. So that ends this podcast on SPP and AKI in patients with liver cirrhosis. I hope you found it useful and thank you for listening. Thank you.